Good morning. If you're visiting with us, we're certainly glad to have you. It is always an encouragement and uplifting to us members when we get visitors throughout this time of year. If you are visiting, I implore to you to come back next Sunday if you're here because I'm not the real preacher. As time goes on and as my children wear on me, I've now inherited or succumbed to the fact that my memory is not what it used to be. I now am empathetic to all of you. So thank you for bearing with me if I repeat myself. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37... I may have said it before, but if I have, I think it's worth repeating. I am always grateful to Dave for allowing me the time that I get to stand in front of you to read from the Word of God and to learn from the Word of God because virtually every time I have, I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself, and I hope that you can learn with me. I'd like to look through the briefly uh, the story of Joseph. And I've picked through a few scriptures to look at. And I would like to do that this morning, most of all, because I'd like to go along the premise of what do we have inside of us? What do we fill ourselves with? What things have we put there, whether it be love for our children? Or the things that we accomplish in life, the success we have, whether it be uh, from inheriting things or having a home, financial status, uh, friends, the relationships we have here. What do we fill ourselves with? And most of all, do we have space to put something inside of us? What, what would we fill that opening with if it's not filled with Christ? If we're not continually steadfast in the Word of God, what is filling that space in our lives and our hearts? If we're not continually filling it with the Word, what are we filling it with? As uh, I try to continue learning useless knowledge over time. I came across a a professor who had an interesting perspective regarding overcoming the darkness, regarding uh, the story of Pinocchio, even going into the belly of the whale to retrieve your father. What does that, what does that mean? What does that mean to us psychologically? And he came across an interesting fact that I, would like to share with you that it's not that when you have a fear, a clinical psychologist will break down the fear to the point of the smallest common denominator that the patient can withstand or put up with. If you have a fear of elevators and are in enclosed spaces, the job of that clinical psychologist is not simply on your first visit to walk you to the Sears Tower in Chicago and put you on the elevator and send you up 110 floors. That's not his job. The job is, can, can you stand inside of an elevator if it's not moving? No. Well, can you go look at the elevator? Well, yeah, I can put up with that. Then that's where we begin. You start with that. 
And at each step of the way, what's happening isn't that you're becoming, you're not becoming afraid. It's because what's happening is you're gaining information and knowledge. And so you're not becoming less afraid, but you're becoming braver. Each time you're doing that, you're doing something new, you're gaining information. And what the body is doing, what your mind is doing, is you're exchanging that information as it happens over and over the information compounds, and that becomes a skill or an ability. If you've been through secondary schools or trade schools, that's what's happening each and every time. If you know nothing about electricity or how wiring works, you don't simply go to the state to get certified. You go through the classes, and then you take those bits and pieces of information, and you're compiling those together. So you may have a fear of being electrocuted and killed on the job, but what happens is over time, it's not that you're not afraid of dying, it's that you're braver in the fact that you have the skills and capabilities to make use of the knowledge you have without killing yourself. There's actually biological evidence that shows when you're doing this, the stresses are a catalyst in your body, and the genes are creating a protein that will affect the neural landscape of your mind. It actually puts together that the same way that a bodybuilder works out and destroys muscle fiber in order to build it again, you can do that in your mind. And I think that's incredibly fascinating that God saw fit to create us the way he did. And each and every day when we see these things, and this is after years and years, decades of learning about the human body, that people are just now finding this out. But it's been there all along. And that's why I want to look back at Joseph to see what was there all along that we have in us today to do the same thing. It isn't simply that we need to have a self-help speech to how do we get over our fears this morning. What I want us to look at is filling ourselves with the word and continuing in that will help us to gain more knowledge in God and what he has done for us and what he wants for us. And we can continue to unlock that throughout our lives to fulfill his will, not to fulfill our own and to understand where those blessings come from with God. So if we're looking at Joseph in chapter 37, we're beginning with the fact in verse 18. When, and this is his brothers looking at him. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes the, this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into the, one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit, and it, will, it, it is in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand, hands on him, that he, may, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit, now the pit was empty without any, any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes, they looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gideon, uh, Gilead with their camels bearing aromic gum and balm and myrrh. 
on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. At this point, Joseph has been going about his life, expressing what his dreams mean, understanding that they are coming, that he believes they're coming from God, and his brothers are extremely jealous of this fact. And through the providence of God, Reuben decides that they shouldn't just kill him, but let's put him away in hopes that he might be able to do something. However, this takes a turn. And that is the story of Joseph's life. It is turns and turns again that from a first-person standpoint, living in that space, if one of us is in a position that we are, our family betrays us to the fact that they're selling us into slavery. In this time, in this world that Joseph lives in, there are very few lower places to be than a slave. In simple slave trade in this time and frame, you're not just taking someone and they're going, okay, I will go with you now. I am now your slave. I was just sold to you. This individual has to go through something that will destroy them psychologically to the fact that they are not willing to think of themselves as something other than property. They are in beat down to the mind point, uh, to the standpoint that their mind is only of the fact that they belong to someone else, that they are not free. It is something very difficult for us to comprehend. There are very few places lower than this that you could ever become. And that's what his brothers put him into. So how easy is it for us to, as an individual to look at this standpoint, something bad happening to us, and to start filling ourselves with resentment towards our family, towards our friends, towards people that betray us, people in the workplace that might say something we don't agree with to, to a superior that gets us in a position that we don't want to be in. You might get pulled over for something that you don't believe you were doing and you get filled with something. You get cut off on the road and all of a sudden you immediately look at the other individual and you believe you know it's in their mind because of what they just did. If we go to Genesis chapter 39... As we continue through the story, again, just picking bits and pieces that I'd like to look at. So now he's gone from the fact that he was a slave. He then is working for someone that he's gaining favor with. So things are almost looking better. They're getting into a point where this might be a livable life. 39 chapter 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left the garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to, to us to make sport of us. 
He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And I raised my voice and I screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in jail. If there's a place that you can go below being a slave, Joseph put himself in the best possible position to be over everything in his master's household, to virtually have freedom inside that confined space. He's now been put even lower to the fact that you're in a political prisoner's cage in the castle where they absolutely do not care about your livelihood. If you die sitting in that cell tomorrow, there will be no tears shed. In Potiphar's house, he at least had responsibilities. He was maintaining something. Potiphar had a care for him at that point, even being a slave. Now he's even the tear down to the very bottom. And in the standpoint of being able to do something to almost kick the can down the road, he said to Potiphar's wife, how can I sin against God? Not your husband, but God. In his heart, he is still filling that space with God, with the understanding that the Spirit is leading him. If we continue to verse 41, or chapter 41. As he's had dreams and spoken to different prisoners, and those dreams have come true. Chapter 41, verse 16. Being brought in front of Pharaoh. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile. And they grazed in the, grass, in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had been devoured, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. And as Pharaoh continues in his dreams, Joseph then translates the dreams for him. In verse 38, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all of my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Immediately from the point that he's put in a position to lift himself up in front of Pharaoh about being able to decipher the dreams and let him know what is going to happen to Egypt of seven years of great prosperity followed by seven years of great famine. The first thing out of Joseph's mouth is the fact that God is going to give you this news, not me. 
Pharaoh set him up for the fact, are you the one who can tell me what my dreams mean? Is it you? And immediately he says, it is God that can do this. When we continue in verse 50. Now before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Ezanath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He takes the opportunity even further, the fact to remind himself each and every day through the names of his sons, what has been done for him by God and what he has now. I don't know about you, if you have children, I know I say my children's names often throughout the day. Most times lovingly, of course. I'm not trying to hold them back from running around like a wild banshee, Hudson. I'm talking to you. But he takes that opportunity to remind himself where he is, where he has come from. And if we look at chapter 42... As the famine has begun, and now Jacob's sons have to leave the land in order to go to Egypt to try to get food. And in verse 6, now Joseph was the ruler of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. He immediately treats them with harshness, understanding exactly the culmination of this full circle is coming to an end. And even though he's done so much for God, he treats them harshly from his immediate experience of recognizing them, not wanting them to see who he is, not simply opening the home. He then is going to put them through tests to see if they are still the brothers that sold him into bondage. Are they the same people that they were when he was with them. And in chapter 43, in verse 29, as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God, grac- may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. The toll of the tests are not just taking, are not just having an effect on the brothers and the constant back and forth to go speak with Jacob to get Benjamin to come back. And all the effort that that took 
the emotional anguish that overtook Joseph is just as powerful. If not, the emotions we go through each and every day, from happiness to sadness to the anger that we can experience, to losing a loved one and the anguish that that may bring upon us, that emotional struggle is infinite. A physical cut can heal. A broken leg, while painful for the short term, can be put in a cast and healed. The emotional strain that we go through does not have the opportunity to be put in a cast to heal. It is something that is infinite. and can become very great in our hearts. It, that, is what, that is what is so important about keeping God in our hearts, the Word of God written on our hearts, to continually be involved in studying it and learning more about His heart is because by doing that, that is what can heal our emotions and our soul. That is the only thing that we have in this world. When we look at the great disasters that occur, the hurricane that hits the panhandle to eradicate people's homes, is a visual example of the fact of what will waste away in this world, and that is everything. And all we have is our soul and what God provides for us. And then as we go to chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone get out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are still five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. As he's complete this, he knows in his heart that God, through his providence, is the one that has done this. Through the miracles that God gave him the ability to read dreams moving forward, he does not put blame on his brothers. He gives glory to God. There is no blame in him in any of this. In fact, he tells his brothers, do not be dismayed. Do not be grieved with yourselves. If this had not happened, God could not be gloried here. It's one of the firm examples, as we have so many in the Bible, it is one of the greatest examples of the fact that God uses every single thing that happens to fulfill His will, to glorify His name. There's not one thing that will happen in this world that will not eventually lead to the fact that God is going to be glorified, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess 
Jesus is Lord. There is nothing in the middle between here and there that will stop that from happening. God is able to use everything for His glory. Now, it's up to us to make that choice, to have that in our hearts, to be a part of that positive, to be a part of God's will each and every day in our lives. Not to simply say, well, it's going to happen, so I'm just going to do what I want. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to have Him inside of us. Through Christ, we are able to have Him inside of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, For I do not wish to boast. I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to me, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My boasting of the weaknesses, he is able to fulfill God's will. In 1993, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a woman by the name of Mary Johnson received a phone call while she was at work that she needs to check on her son. And after calling around, she eventually heard back that her son was at the morgue. Come to find out he was at a party and a young man who was captured three days later by the name of O'Shea Israel had been captured and, sent and arrested for the second degree murder of her son by shooting him at a party. At that moment in time, through the sentencing hearings, as he was found guilty, she looked at O'Shea Israel, a 16-year-old, with immense hatred. And during the sentencing hearings, when she was able to give her uh, speech to the judge and to the jury, she finished with the fact that I will forgive you because the Bible tells me so. But it wasn't in her heart. It wasn't until 12 years later that she decided to go visit O'Shea Israel while he was in prison. Serving a 25 year sentence. She had been compelled with the fact that she wanted to see him and to see if he was still the same person who had murdered her son. After refusing her visit several times, O'Shea finally gave in and they were able to sit together for two hours. And she simply started with the fact that I don't know you and you don't know me. And for two hours, they began to talk with one another. And at the end, she broke down in tears. The only thing O'Shea could think to do was to hug her as he would hug his own mother. And so they hugged. And after he left the room, she continued to sit there. And she said to herself, 
I just hugged the man who murdered my son. In 2010, O'Shea was able to complete a sentence early and was released. Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel are now next door neighbors. And they spend many, t- many times and meals with one another when O'Shea may stop by and check on her. He's quoted as saying, it's just like having my mother next door that when I talk to her, she simply asks, why haven't you helped me with the garbage lately? Why haven't you called to check on me a little bit more? That it's really having my mom next door. Mary, in the same interview, said that I don't get to experience that with my son because he's gone. But I get to experience that with you. I didn't get to see my son graduate from college, but you're in college. And I'm going to get the chance to see you graduate. I didn't get to see my son get married and have a family. But because of you, I have the opportunity to do that. And at the end of the interview, O'Shea said, I love you, lady. Mary Johnson said, I love you, son. That is the power that God has in our hearts. We look around in the world today, we see foolish strife. Whether it be in political nature, in our driving habits, the things that we let get under our skin. We have to understand something. That's not what we're called for. We're called for so much greater. And if Mary Johnston can hug the man who murdered her son and live to call him a son, how much more is God willing to do for us when he adopts us into his family when we're buried with Jesus in baptism? And that is what I preached to you this morning and I preached to myself. To have that love in our hearts, to have the word of God on our hearts. If you haven't taken that opportunity to begin that walk with Christ, we have water for baptism prepared. If you have, but you need the prayers of the congregation, please come forward now as we stand and sing.